Good morning, Grace Hill. Hope you're doing well. It is good to be with you these few days before Christmas. I hope you're doing well. Man, we miss you guys. We wish we could be together. We say that every week, and it's true. Every week, we wish we could just be with you. So wherever you are, however many people are with you this morning, we just want to say thanks for joining us and worshiping with us so far this morning. We're just grateful to be able to sit on the Word of God together. So good morning. We're just a few days out from Christmas, and I feel like I just need to get just a little bit off my chest this morning before we dive into the Word, all right? So we're super close. The anticipation for Christmas has been building over the past few weeks, has it not? And... I don't know about you, but for me, when I turn on the TV at any point, the commercials are starting to just inundate us with all of these amazing gifts that you need to have for the year, right? Am I alone? No, I'm not alone. So here's the deal. I'm just really frustrated because I feel like the perfect gift is this, that Lexus car commercial. Have you seen it? You know what I'm talking about? That one where there's a his and her car out on the driveway. Man, I think every time I turn on the TV, I think they play that the moment I turn it on. And it just frustrates me because I'm like, number one, who who actually do you know anybody that actually gets that? Who, who, who wakes up Christmas morning? And there's a his and hers car out there, much less two Lexuses. But do you, do you know what I'm talking about? that one? It just gets me. It just bugs me because I feel like I'm never going to have that. And so I feel like I'm just missing out. I don't know if you feel that. But I just wanted to get that off my chest as Christmas is coming. And every commercial I see this. This this past several days has been that one. So um, I just wanted to share that with you and just confess that and get that off my chest. It's a ridiculous commercial, but thank you for letting me have that moment. Listen, I know no doubt about it. This time of year, whether it's a gift like that or something crazy where you feel like, gosh, I see that. I want it. I know I'll never get it. But if I just had it, man, life would be good. But look, I know this year brings up a lot of different feelings and emotions, similar to maybe the ones I just shared. But we have expectations around this time, don't we? All of us have that. For some, this is a really joyous time. And for others of us, man, this can be a really disappointing and maybe even a depressing time of year for many, many reasons. And if you're like me, the supposed joy of the season that they talk about all the time, the, the commercials, the, the banners that you read when you drive by, the joy of the season, sometimes maybe for you, it feels a little bit out of reach. It feels like it's maybe just not quite enough. The joy of the season is just not quite enough to fill the longing or make up for any loss that we've suffered or enduring this Christmas season. Not even that his or her car in the driveway with a bow on top can actually satisfy those deep longings in our souls. Now, I know I just heard someone under their breath mutter, well, Evan, those two new cars, they wouldn't hurt. All joking aside, we don't have to work really hard to realize that this current season that we are in also has had just an additional impact on top of this Christmas season being upon us. Family and friends, we've, we've known some of them who have been sick. Some of us know people who've actually passed away through this COVID season that we've been in. We have all been affected by this pandemic. And this Christmas season, we realize, is not immune to the virus and its impact on us. So we have a cocktail of pandemic weariness 
and we have the holiday season. But we realize it doesn't just affect us physically, right? It, it affects us mentally and, and spiritually too, right? It's wearying. It's taxing on all of us. We've seen businesses go under. We've seen some thrive. We have seen governments all over the world try their best to protect you and me from the virus, and they have failed at that. They couldn't do it. We've gone through a bruising year as a nation, politically and socially. This past presidential election was really, really painful for the Western church. And on top of all of that, relationships have suffered because we just haven't been able to be together. And I know this, and it's made things really hard in our life. And we're walking through tough seasons in relationships as well in our own family. And this is just hard. It's just hard on everyone. So many things are difficult. What a mess. Happy Sunday morning, Grace Hill. What a mess. And some of us, though, we, we know it won't matter much, but we, we just can't wait in the next few days for 2020 to change to 2021. And it gives some sort of psychological hope, doesn't it? Like, we're just, we just want to see that number change. But this is where we are. This is the problem that we all face. We are in the middle of a mess, aren't we? But we're in the middle of a mess that it's not just from the virus alone, right? The, the, the world every day reminds you and me of our sin. And the sin of those around us, humanity as a whole, the cumulative effect of sin is all around us. So we recognize there's brokenness and difficult messiness all around us. And the Bible tells you and me that even creation itself, what? It groans, it aches, longing to be set free from sin. And so over the past few weeks, as a church, we've been walking through an Advent series We've been walking through an incredible story, the greatest story, and that's not hyperbolic at all, the greatest story ever. We've been walking through it. And this this story is the Bible's account of God's rescue plan, his redemptive story that he's writing, and it's unfolding before our very eyes. And it's a story, Grace Hill, that if we just step back just for a little bit, just step back just a bit, it, it, it meets us in the very place that you and I find ourselves right here, right now. Waiting, longing, aching. Is there a point to waiting? Is there a point to our longing? Is there a point to the aching that we find in our lives and the, the, the world around us? Is there a hope in those things? Might there be something for us to be doing in the midst of waiting, longing, and aching? What I believe today, and we spend time in the Word of God, is that we'll find the answer is yes to all three of those questions. There's a point, there's a hope, and there's something for us to do. So what I want to do is I just want to go back through what we, where we've been over the past several weeks. The first week in our Advent series with us is we saw this. The first week, God created a perfect place. Perfect. Everything was perfect. In that perfect place, he created relationships. And those relationships were perfect. He gave life to everything. And God ruled over all things and all was perfect. It sounds too good to be true. But it was. In the second week, we saw a mess occur. The God who created all of life 
The God who created life, that life then rebelled against God himself. They, they rebelled against his rule. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust the warning he gave them to always believe me. And instead of trusting themselves, they ushered in a mess of pain and suffering and death and things that you and I are experiencing still to this very day. Yet in the midst of this mess, God gave a hope. He gave a promise to right all that had been wrong, made wrong by us to enter into this mess and to clean it up. The promise we hear in Genesis chapter three is where we're at today. This, this week, and I, I missed the following week. The, 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 the promise was going to take a long time to come. There was this waiting and waiting and waiting, and Alan walked us through that. And so here today we find, we finally get to this, this amazing place in the story, almost the climax. And, and what we see is the promise that we heard, the promise that we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for is finally being realized in the text we're going to be in today. You don't have to turn to the gospel account, but I just want to read the beginning part of the gospel of Matthew. And he sets it up so we can see this epic promise from God finally being realized through a family and through a person, through an actual person. The very beginning of Matthew's gospel is a genealogy. Just read a little bit of it real quick. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do all of that, right? Uh, I mean, this is why we love genealogy so much, right? I mean, they're, they're fascinating, like literal page turners, right? No, we struggle through them. But, but why is it here? Matthew begins with this genealogy because it shows the incredible promise being fulfilled by God through generation after generation after mess after mess after mess. And yet God's promise was faithful and he fulfilled that promise here. And this is what we're beginning to see. Through this family line that we read at the beginning of Matthew, the Savior comes to bless the whole world. And we see this coming from all the way back from Genesis chapter 12 when God promised Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world. Grace Hill, God is coming for us in the form of a person and he's coming into the middle of a mess. A mess then and a mess now. So I want us to look at scripture together now. You want to just turn just a little bit further, go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. And here's where I want us to begin, just to look at how God came into the middle of our mess back then. And then we'll move to how he's come into the middle of the mess now. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. You can read along. There's going to be scripture on the screen. You can follow along there or on your Bibles if you have them. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that you invite us into your story. I'm so thankful that we get a chance today as your, as your sons and daughters and, and some of us who may not even know you yet as, as father, but God are getting a chance to, 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 to see the story unfold before our very eyes of your rescue plan for us. God, I'm so thankful that even in the middle of our mess, some of us have messes going on right now. We're sitting here on the couch. We're sitting here at the kitchen table. We're standing up. We're driving. God, God wherever we're at, we're, we're sitting here, and there's things going on in our lives that we are just either frustrated by, that we're tired by, that we're weary, that we're angry about. And God, I'm so thankful that you just remind us over and over and over again in the story of redemption that you are with us. God, I beg your Holy Spirit to move and to encourage and to challenge us, God, this morning to be, God, so thankful to you. But not just thankful, but God, to to maybe once again be just in awe of you, in awe of your promises, in awe of your power, in awe of the fact that you, God, want a relationship with us and that you're with us. Oh, God, encourage us this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Remember, God with us. God comes towards us. God comes into the middle of the mess. Don't run past that. This is the good news. This is the incarnation of Jesus. John 1.14, it'll come up on your screen. John 1.14 speaks to this incarnation of Jesus saying, and the word became flesh. That's Jesus, a real person. And dwelt among us. It's skin and bones. He walked around. He breathed. He had emotions. He was frustrated. He was sad. He was weary. He was happy. He went through really, 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 really hard things. And we have seen his glory. Glory as only the son from the father. Full of grace and truth. This is what we celebrate. This is the good news. God became one of us. So we see God fulfilled his promise to rescue us through being born into a mess. And some of you are going like, Evan, you keep saying mess. What mess? All right, well, here, let me, let me start with this. Jesus' parents, and we just read in Matthew 1, 18 through 23, a very truncated version of this. Jesus' parents were thrust into a pregnancy that neither of them had any role in. Try, and I'm joking here, but Try explaining the whole found to be with child from the Holy Spirit line sometime. See how messy that gets. Yeah, right. Jesus didn't come into a swanky hospital room. He was born to two poor parents. And and I miss this sometimes. Jesus didn't bypass the reality of what childbirth entails for both mother and child. He came into the world the same way you and I did. So we also see in the story of redemption that Jesus came into a really, really messy time. 
Herod the king, the leader of that time, he had just cruelly decreed the execution of all males two years or younger. What an absolute nightmare. No appeals, no discussions, no voting. A decree, a horrifying decree going out. The prophet Jeremiah personifies the mothers of Israel at that time as Rachel in this text from Matthew 2, 18. I'm going to read it. It's going to come up as well. A voice was heard in Ramah. Now, Ramah, back in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, was, was, was representative where I mean, all of the children of, of Israel, they, they were taken. They were taken into exile. And, and, and Israel was basically no longer a nation anymore. It was considered a dead nation. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel at that time, but then Rachel now, Israel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. On top of that, Joseph and Mary take their newborn and they flee. They have to become refugees in a foreign land. They have to go to Egypt, not by boat, not by car, not by plane. 90 miles away, they have to flee with their newborn and become refugee in a foreign land to escape the very leader of the government that they are a part of, seeking to kill their newborn baby, looking for that baby. The incarnation of Jesus came right into the middle of a mess. He didn't bypass the mess. He came towards it. He came in it. And so here we get the answer to the question, is there a point to the mess? I I asked earlier, is, is there a point to our mess? Is there a point to the waiting and longing and aching that we have? And it's yes, because the world needs someone to fix it. So we need to know that it's actually broken to clean up what is dirty. The mess of sin and its effects all throughout human history point us to our need for a God to come for us. So I said we would see how this happens then. So we just walked through that. I want to walk through how it happens now. How does this work now? And to do that, I want to look at how Jesus has come towards us in the middle of the mess. And I want to do that by looking at a text in John chapter 4. And this is going to be a remarkable account that we see from Jesus. We learn so much as we observe how he lives his life. So the text is John 4. I'm going to read a little bit, 1 through 26. How does Jesus come towards us now in the mess? Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that the... Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and parted again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came in to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away and into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, 
as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Incredible account. What we see is Jesus arrives to the well, tired, weary. He's been traveling. He is heading. He's left Judea and on his way to Galilee. So he takes a load off like any of us and, and, and rests. And at this time, this woman, as we read, she comes to the well. And she's probably there most likely by herself. Now, now, why is that significant? Why do we even care about this? Well, during the time frame, women most likely came to the wells in groups and they would come before or after the hottest part of the day. And so here it is, the sixth hour. And, and what all those scholars say is that this was probably the hottest part of the day. So she's coming when no one else would normally come. And it's really, really hot and she's alone. So question for us is what's driving the woman's behavior to be coming at this point? Why, why, why is she there right now? And I, I believe what we're going to see is shame is causing her to have to come at the time she is coming to. Now, here's an example of Jesus entering into a mess because on top of all of this, Jesus is stepping into a, a, a conflict, Jews versus Gentiles. They did not like each other. I mean, the best way I can think of this is like, think about a far right Republican and a far left Democrat sitting down at a table two weeks before the election. How much, how much kindness would be shown towards each other? Would they want to be there together? Probably not, right? Some deep-seated differences with each other. Many Jews wouldn't even eat with a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman. In fact, there was a Jewish law that came in in this generation around this time that codified into law, Jewish law, that to even to even, that a, a, a Samaritan woman was 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 to be considered perpetually unclean, defiled, right? That's crazy. And so Jesus is stepping right in. Jesus, a Jew, is stepping right into the middle of this. And you can tell because notice the woman's surprised. She's going, why are you asking me for a drink? Like, don't you see that I'm a Samaritan woman? She's kind of recoiling in this conversation. She's, she's unsure why someone is, is engaging her this way. And, but Jesus answers her. 
right? We see in the text, he goes, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him for a drink. In the woman's midst is the very gift of God, the incarnate son of God, Jesus, the promised Messiah. And she has no idea. Jesus is not only breaking the strict Jewish regulations and, 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 and pressing through ethnic biases, He's also breaking this woman's worldview of not just her culture, but he's getting ready to break her own view of herself. This living water that Jesus is offering is simple, but there is so much depth to it. The woman, and I think we can read ourselves into this, is immediately seen answering just very pragmatically, right? Sure. Sounds great. Give me water. And guess what? Then I don't have to come here anymore, right? But what we see here is Jesus, man, Jesus is coming after her. He wants access to all of her. He is aiming at her mess. He is aiming at the shame in her life. He wants her to understand the depth of what he is offering her in this moment. She and you and I would be no different. Think merely physical thirst here right away and convenience, right? But Jesus, man, he is aiming at something far deeper. In the Old Testament, we see exactly what Jesus is referring to. Jeremiah 2.13 says this. The prophet speaking for the Lord says this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus is helping us see that God, the God who made all things, who made life from dust, is the actual living water himself that sustains all of life. And without this living water, Jesus, we all return to dust. So for the woman at the well, Jesus knows this, knows that that's her greatest need. And guess what? He enters into her mess. Listen to how Jesus responds to the woman's request. In our text, we read this. Jesus responds to her. He says, well, okay, go call your husband and come here. And the woman, was we already read, she goes, I, I have no husband. Jesus is like, you tell the truth. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the person you're with right now is not your husband. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is going straight at her shame and her guilt. This wasn't Jesus showing off his godness. Like, here I come, let me show you how godlike I am, even though he is. He is God. No. This is Jesus showing his compassion. This is Jesus showing his mercy. This is Jesus showing his love for you and for me and this woman at the well. Does he know everything about her? Yes. Does he know everything about you and me? Yes. The gross stuff? The really, really gross stuff? The stuff that we try and make seem palatable to other people when they ask us, how are you really doing? Yeah. He knows it all. 
Jesus answers the second question that I asked earlier. Is there hope in the middle of the waiting and the longing and the aching? Is there hope in the middle of the mess? Jesus answers it. This account here shows us that there is a hope in our waiting and our longing and our aching and our messiness and our shame. There's hope for that. There's hope in the midst of our stories. Because God is right in the middle of it, just like he was for the woman at the well. Right there. With us, with her. This is the hope that God gives you and me. He comes towards us. He does not ever run away from our messes, our shame, our guilt, our aching, our longing. He runs towards us. And so, Grace Hill, this is what I'm going to do right now. I just want us to take some time, and we do on Zoom a little breakout question. And here's where I just want to leave us just for a little bit, just to ponder this right here. I want us to run past it. So here's my question for you and your groups. And if you're not going to follow us on Zoom and you're just following along on Facebook or YouTube, here's the question for you to consider. Where have you seen God give you hope in the middle of your mess? Think about that and spend time talking to those in your Zoom breakouts together about that, sharing that with one another, and then we'll come back and we'll finish the sermon.
Welcome back. I hope the breakout time was fruitful. I hope it was just really encouraging. But just as a family together, you get to share with one another where you've seen the hope of God, God himself, your hope, show up in the middle of your really hard places. I believe it's a gift to be able to share that with one another. The hope that God gives is Jesus with us. So I just want to kind of move back just for a few minutes and just really kind of try to hammer home, try to like just get like razor focused on what Jesus has done for us in this text, what, he, what he's done for the woman at the well and what he's doing for you and me today as we are reading this text. Jesus in this passage, he, he blows up the need for you and me. I just, just hear this, hear this. I know I need to hear this and you need to hear this. Jesus blows up the need that you and I feel to be ashamed of our stories. Jesus is telling you and me, you don't need to stuff anything down. You don't need to, to seek to try to avoid or, or find another way around your hurts and your pains and your shame. Jesus is saying, I'm with you in that. I'm writing your story through these things, as difficult as they are. He's not minimizing pain. He's validating our pain and our struggles and our hurts and our guilt and our shames. See, what he's saying is we need more than money. We need more than a spouse or a relationship. We need more than that new job. We need more than just access to more material things that try to help us escape our stories or rewrite different stories. That's what he's saying. He, he knows that we need someone to come in the middle of our mess. We need someone to come in the middle of our greatest sin struggles. We need someone to come and meet us in our deepest regrets, our deepest shames. We need someone in the middle of our most painful experiences. That is our greatest need. We need someone who can hold that place for us. I need that. But friends, what, what, do we, what do we do? What do we do when someone tends to get too close? What do you do when someone gets too close, asks too many questions, asks the hard question, the one you don't want to answer? See, I think we see the woman do the same thing that you and I do. I have no husband. What is she doing? She's deflecting away from the heart of the matter. Jesus knows she doesn't have a husband. And so what does she do? She gives a little bit of a half truth of like, well, I don't have a husband. I don't want to talk about the elephant in the room. 
I don't want to talk about the elephant in the room for me. She doesn't even know Jesus knows that yet. And so she goes, I have no husband. I don't need to talk about that issue. Don't we do the same thing? It's not that bad. Yeah, I struggle. It's the Christianese for like faking. Like I'm not want to talk about something. Like I'm, you know, I'm all right. Not that bad. Doing better. It's been worse. We push people away from the sensitive areas in our lives, don't we? So we, we essentially we mask the truth or just tell a bit of it. Why do we do this? Why do I do this? I do this. I do this. I know that. Why are we? Why am I so afraid? Why am I so unaware to be able to just share the real story of my life? All of it. It's because we believe our shame and our mess is too much for God. And if it's too much for God, it's certainly too much for other people. It's just like the woman at the well. We don't actually believe that God is with us he's somewhere else he's yet to come maybe he's just a theological construct maybe he's just a crutch maybe 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 but we don't actually believe even if we think he does we 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 know it here sometimes right but we actually don't believe we don't we the actual belief to live out that god is with us man we, we rarely go there don't we i do and see what Jesus is showing you and me, what Jesus is so compassionately doing for the woman and for you and me, is he's showing us that he is coming at the walls of shame, the walls of guilt, the walls of pride, with the walls of hurt. You know what he's coming at those walls with? You know what he's coming at them with? He's coming at them with a bulldozer. He's blowing them up. He sees it all. He speaks straight to the woman's mouth, straight to her biggest guilt and shame, right? He's saying, I'm not afraid of your mess, Evan. I'm not afraid. I'm not disgusted by your mess. I know you're disgusted at your own mess. I'm not disgusted at it. I came just for that mess, to clean that up, to help you. And friend, he's not afraid of your mess. He's calling you to believe him. I know I needed to hear that this week. This week, I just, I blew blew it this past week. I'm tired. I'm I'm a bit banged up. Because part of it, I was just ashamed of my sin. I didn't just blow it once. I blew it several times this week. I said, I said some things I wish I hadn't have said and did some things I wish I hadn't have done. I, mean, I felt ashamed. I felt guilty. I felt, um, man, you name it. I just felt defeated. Felt unworthy. And then I studied this text. I thought about what does God want to say to me? What does God want to say to you today, this morning, December 20th? What does he want to say to us? 
And what he's saying is that my incarnation is the proof that you need heaven and the proof that you need Grace Hill. Real proof, real evidence to actually experience the love of God. To actually experience presence, the presence and the reality that God is with you. Because you see what this story is all about? You see what this story from the very beginning was all about? It's that God, through Jesus, he's aiming at our shame. And you know who else is aiming at it? Satan. Dr. Kurt Thompson said this so well in a session that I've been with him as I've been working through hurts in my own life. Trying to navigate, how does the gospel work in these hard places, in these, these difficult places for me where I get struggled with anger and, and, and hurt and, and resentment and, and just, just tired of those things in my life and just going, how does the gospel work? And this is what he said in one of those sessions. He said, shame wants to hijack our narrative. Shame wants to hijack our narrative. Gosh, that's so true for me. And then shame becomes the emissary to start sharing different things about our story. Ah, it's so true. See, the story of the woman at the well shows us that the living water that Jesus offers is one that begins to relieve shame. It begins to relieve our longing just enough. It begins to enter into our waiting and show that, yes, there is a hope and that I'm with you. But how? How does that work? And this is where we see that we actually do have something to do in the midst of the shame, in the midst of the longing and the aching, in the waiting. The very thing that the incarnation of Jesus does for us is it redeems the relationship that was broken at the fall. That's the first thing. And the second thing is is it it rescues us from sin to allow our relationship with God himself not just be possible, not just be possible, but to be enjoyed. Friend, do you enjoy the presence of God in your life? See, God knows the very thing we long for is intimate connection. What does that mean? To be known, to be fully known. That's what we want. That's what we were made for. And that intimacy is what Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, restores. And he starts to begin to deal with the healing and redemption of our deepest stories and our deepest wounds. And in this intimate connection that we experience as we follow Jesus is the very thing that we experience and are able to start to bring in our relationships to one another. Dr. Kurt Thompson articulated it this way. The very thing that God wants to transform to have us drink from the fountain of living water is what we are most terrified of. But, but, Our community, our church family, our relationships with one another in Christ will say that shame will never have the last word. Hear that again. Shame will never have the last word. But guess what? That means we have a role in that as well. 
And see, this is our call, Grace Hill. This is our call as a church, as an expression of the local body of Christ here in Herndon, Virginia. This is our call to remember Jesus comes for you and he comes for me. And so in turn, we go after one another in the exact same way. We strive to do that. We lean in to do that for one another. Shame doesn't get the last word in this church. Shame doesn't get the last word in your relationship with one another. It doesn't get it. We share our lives. We give ourselves. We share our stories together honestly because God is right here. He is with you. He is with me. And that changes everything. Our love, our care, our empathy for one another is Christ Jesus himself in us coming for one another. What's the incarnation of Jesus supposed to do in us? What are we supposed to do in the middle of our messes? The messes we find ourselves in right now are waiting, are longing, are aching for Jesus to come back is to move towards one another in relationship. That's what we're to do. And so, Grace Hill, this is what this means. This means we start to become comfortable with messiness just being a part of our relationships with one another. We become comfortable with messiness being a part of the design that God has for us in our relationships. Why is that? He's good with ours. So we run towards messes. We don't run away from them. We don't run away from them. They're awkward. Yeah. Get comfortable with it being awkward. Well, it's, 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 it's vulnerable. Get comfortable with it being, being vulnerable. God's with you. This isn't, this isn't just, um, uh, just, just, these aren't just words on a text. This is the living, active presence of the Holy Spirit in us. God himself being with you and me. <laughs> Run towards those messes. Don't hide your hurts. Don't hide your disappointments. Realize that your presence with one another is actually a tangible expression of of the incarnate God being with us. Man, our presence really, really, really matters. It's not coming from an extrovert. That's coming from the story of the gospel itself. Relationships matter. Our presence matters. God didn't send a note. God didn't just send a text. God didn't just send an email. He didn't send a a Facebook post. He sent his son in the flesh to be with us in the mess. So we do this with one another. We give ourselves to each other the way Jesus has given himself for us. God with us is the example of, and the mission that we are to follow. 
This is why we have community groups. And no, I'm not going to just do it. There's not just an ad for that. That's why we have them. This is why it exists in so many churches because we, 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 we see the gospel call us together as a, as a new, as a priesthood, a holy nation, a priesthood set aside for God, for the good of one another and the good of the world that we live in. To follow the model that Jesus gave us of incarnation. So we try to follow incarnational living ourselves, relational connectedness with God. Yes, yes, absolutely. And with one another on a horizontal plane. And doesn't it make sense though? I can. I know some people are like, I don't need them. I don't like them. They're messy. Yeah, that's the point. They're messy because you're messy and I'm messy. Mess plus mess. I'm not good at math. Equals mess. And God's good with that. God's working in that. The whole narrative of God's story is his coming for you and me. And then having us go after the very world that he's created and that he loves for the people around us. To go after them with that same love. That is really good news. God, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, comes for us. He forgives us. He bears our sin and our shame on the cross. He calls us his own. He says, I'm proud of you, daughter. I'm proud of you, son. If your earthly fathers or mothers have never said that to you, your heavenly father says, I'm proud of you. I love you. Everything I have is yours. Everything. He's not ashamed of you. That is a powerful gospel. And God invites us to share this powerful, good news that his love and his presence is available to those around us. I just want to close with this. This is Jesus' last words. If you've been around church for any amount of time, you have heard this before. But I can think of no more appropriate way to close our time than to hear Jesus' very words before he ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father. I want to hear his last words he says before that happens. It's so significant. Because we're going to see in the middle of the mess that there is a point to the mess to show we need God. That there's a hope in the mess because God is actually with us. And that there's something for us to do, which means to go after one another in relationship the way God has come after us for relationship with us. And I'll close with these words. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Grace Hill, hear these last words. And behold, I am always with you the end of the age. I, Jesus, am with you always to the end of the age. God, we we just want to worship you. 
How can we not worship you when you see the worst in us and still come after us? How can we not but give thanks to you, God, that at our lowest, God, you're still there. How can we not give you thanks and praise and want to give you everything when when you have given us everything? But God, we know we have an enemy who is aiming at the very thing that your gospel tells us has been relieved. And it's our shame, God. We all have it. And so God, I pray that this Christmas season, as we we celebrate the good news that Jesus came to us, that you came to us, God, in our mess, that, God, we would believe it. That we believe that shame doesn't get the last word in our stories, God. Oh, God, that we would be a people full of grace and love and mercy and patience with each other because that's exactly what you are with us. How can we not worship you, God, when our eyes are open to see how great your love is for us? How can we not? How can we not thank you for the most precious gift that we could ever receive? And so, God, I do. I just pray for myself. I pray I wouldn't just move past that truth. This is the gospel. And God, help us to be motivated out of love for you and love for one another to live out our stories, knowing that you're at work in them and that you have called us together as your people to help write our stories together and to remind ourselves that shame doesn't get the last word. God, may we be a church, Lord, that is consistently moved and humbled, God, by your great love for us. God, would that be a love that marks Grace Hill Church for one another, those of us in this church, and for the community that we get to serve and be a part of. God, would you use your love in us to change the very atmosphere around Northern Virginia, God? Let people know the shame doesn't get the last word. There's no more striving anymore. So God, help us to do that. God, would you let that happen here? God, start with us, please. I'm so thankful for Jesus. It's in his precious and powerful name we pray. Amen.